X3 is the first exercise device to deliver force in line with the variable capabilities of human movement. When you train like this, you go to a far greater level of fatigue, which triggers a commensurate level of growth. Go to x3bar.com and learn more about the professional athletes that use X3 exclusively, as well as many before and after transformations this discovery has caused. Enter the code LIFTSMARTER for $50 off at checkout. That's LIFTSMARTER without a space between the two words for $50 off at checkout. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Hey, Richard M. Cruz, he's a professor and director of the Iowa Water Center. Uh, he goes by Rick. He's also a professor in the agronomy department at Iowa State University. So, uh, Rick, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? That's probably more important. I'm okay. Hey, that's good. Well, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you got to be where you're at today. Sure. Happy to. Um, I grew up on a farm in in northeast Iowa. And uh, from that, I developed a pretty strong love of uh, natural resources, uh, fish, wildlife, trees, that type of stuff. And one of the things my dad told me one time, he said, son, he said, uh, you know, without soils, we wouldn't have any of the things that you like. Well, I thought about it a bit and he's pretty wise. It was pretty easy, you know, what you eat out of the garden, obviously soil is a big deal. But I uh, thought about the desk at school, made out of wood, wood comes from trees. Huh? Leather in my shoes came from animals, uh, made from uh, hides of animals, which ate stuff that ate food that growing in soil. So you go through a pretty long list and realize uh, the importance of, of those, uh, of the soil resource. Yeah, and, one thing I, I thought of is that um, I think everything we eat unless it was just made completely in a factory like Skittles or something, you know, has been worked on by bacteria. So I guess maybe you could think of soil as everyone's first stomach. Hey, that's a That's a great point, Richard. I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, it is, you know, I'm working in the water world. Uh, it's easy for me to realize that the soil is the biggest water filter in the world. Uh, but I hadn't thought about it being a person's first stomach. Uh, very interesting. I'll, I'll use that and I'll quote you if I ever, if I ever mentioned it in public. Sure, yeah, no problem. Use it's your own, it's okay. So, again, what led to uh, your current work? You're focused on the water port, you know, how water interacts with soil, or you focus more on soil itself and soil health? Well, soil health is a, is, is a big, broad umbrella, considering uh, what I'm working on. Uh, a healthy soil is a, ho- a soil that, that stays in place. It's one that uh, isn't eroded, isn't moving around. It has a chance to develop the microbial, the biological components that exist in a healthy soil. And uh, because of that, and because I see time and time and time again, major areas of, of the agricultural landscape that's being eroded and has been eroded, it's had a negative impact on, uh, on crop production uh, and livelihoods. There's offsite damage that occurs with this too. 
uh, it really instilled in me, kind of planted a seed, you know, is there something we can do? Is there some way we can slow this process that is destroying uh, our nature's stomach, so to speak, if I can use your words, um, and, and, and do it in a way that's non-invasive to the farmers, but still have a positive impact on people of today and our future generations. Uh, it's it's a real challenge, and uh, it just kind of grew on me as I, I went through my uh, education. You know, I start actually I started out in fisheries and wildlife biology because of the love of the outdoors. Very few jobs, so I thought around, looked around, and thought, well, maybe so maybe soils is my place. And I uh, started out at Iowa State, then Minnesota University of Minnesota. Master's and PhD in soils and uh, moved into soil management and things gravitated towards the soil erosion area. And that's where I'm focused primarily now, that and water quality. So when you talk about soil erosion, are you talking about literally all of the soil itself eroding away? Or are you talking about leaching of certain uh, materials or chemicals in the soil? Yeah, Richard, it's a combination of, of both of those. Uh, soil erosion dominantly is talking about movement of soils from one place to another and in a, in a farm field most of that soil l- let me let me back up a little bit now I'm gonna, I'll take the the state of Iowa as an example that's where we're living and where I'm talking from right now when the prairies broke this landscape from the uh, when, when yeah when the farmers broke the prairies that were originally here uh, there was about uh, 12 to 16 inches of this dark, rich, fertile topsoil that mantled or covered the entire landscape. Today, approximately one-third, approximately one-third of the farm area in the Corn Belt, which includes Iowa, is devoid or missing this topsoil because it's been eroded and moved away. Water from heavy rainstorms is the dominant cause of this soil movement or soil erosion. Wind is contribute some. And the scary part about the water component is that as the climate is changing, the types of storms that move this rich, fertile layer away from our fields is those storms are increasing, uh, which which creates uh, even a greater problem as we look into the future. So depending on the characteristics of the soil, what makes a particular soil amenable to erosion versus not? Are there some that can, you know, accommodate an inch of rainfall an hour and other ones that will just wash away right away and why? Uh, you're wise beyond your years. Well, the quest, by, I can tell by the questions you're answering. Yes, soils differ. The, the dominant factor, the number one factor is the slope. You know, a sloping soil as water falls and if the water is coming too fast for it to infiltrate totally, water runs off. And uh, anyone that tries to wash your car or do anything with moving water understand that the more rapid water moves, the more, more aggressive it is in terms of picking up soil, soil particles or whatever it's, it's flowing over to move it away. Okay, so the second thing is the type of soil itself. Uh, sands don't erode very rapidly. They're large. They, they stay in place. Uh, medium-sized particles are really the most erosive. All soils are not the same relative to water's capacity to move them. If you stir a, a, a glass of water that has sand in it, you got to stir that, that water really fast to get that sand off the bottom. But if you have finer particles, smaller particles, you stir that water, this particles mix up with it and uh, move with the moving water. And the same principle holds as we're looking at soil erosion. 
So there's a slope characteristic, there's a soil type, and now we'll get to the soil health. Soils are not all the same relative to how they're, they're built. You know, buildings aren't the same. They're put together differently. Well, soil particles cluster together, somewhat like building materials cluster together. We put them together when we're building as a building. But these soil particles, as they cluster together, they make soil aggregates that we call soil aggregates. And if you have a well-aggregated soil, you have larger spaces between those particles, between those aggregates that let water infiltrate more rapidly. So a healthy soil, one that is well aggregated, will also resist water movement over the top because it infiltrates water more rapidly. And by infiltrating water rapidly, you reduce that overland flow and reduce the erosion that occurs. So uh, there are a variety of factors that come into play. If we include the anthropogenic part, the farmer part, let's say, how a farmer manages is is really critical. If you can intercept the energy from falling raindrops with crop residue or plants or, or perennial plants, uh, you go a long, long way to, to keeping infiltration rates high, water runoff low, and soil in place. So is there a ratio of like porosity to, you know, soil particle size that's important? in terms of what the rain will do to a particular soil? A uh, really good question. Again, uh, the porosity itself is not as important as the size of the pores, as the size of those pores in the soils. Um, it gets into the physics pretty rapidly, but uh, if you look at, at flow through a capillary tube, you know the amount of flow that's occurring is proportional to the fourth power of that radius. So for those that are non-geeks, simply saying that the, the as the diameter starts to increase, the flow rate through any pore increases disproportionately to the size of that pore increase. One earthworm channel will conduct more water than will literally thousands of smaller pores that make up the same total pore size as that one earthworm channel. When you exercise with greater force, you trigger greater gains. Shown in 16 out of 16 studies, variable resistance grows muscle faster than weights alone. Go to x3bar.com and learn more about the professional athletes that use X3 exclusively, as well as many before and after transformations this discovery has caused. Enter the code LIFTSMARTER for $50 off at checkout. That's LIFTSMARTER without a space between the two words for $50 off at checkout. Thank you. Oh, because uh, I guess per the equation, it's three or four orders of magnitude more flow for Bingo. an earthworm channel. Bingo. Yeah. So, so, so what happens with that earthworm channel when we till or when it rains and it beats a, the surface apart and covers those holes on the earthworm channels? It basically blocks their effectiveness for, for infiltrating water. And uh, Lord knows we started out talking about temperatures and, and rainfall. We need all the water to infiltrate that we possibly can. Yeah, what happens to an area when it undergoes drought and not enough water is infiltrated? Do the clumps of soil matter break down and turn into dust in smaller uh, sizes, or what happens to them over time? Some some of that depends upon the type of soils that you have. Um, the, the clay mineralogy, um, you know, get getting a little bit geeky, but uh, the soils that we have in the Midwest are younger. 
than the soils, let's say in Texas, in the South, uh, the minerals that are here shrink and swell when they wet. You know, the, you hear farmers say up here that, you know, it's a danger out here. If I drop my pliers, I'm going to lose them in the cracks that have developed between the corn rolls. Well, that's sort of true because these soils actually shrink when they dry. So the question you asked, does it have an impact on the, the drought have an impact on, on soil health? You know, it, it does. To some extent, uh, microbes, the biology that works so well to build these soil structural units that we talk about, they need water. And if you're undergoing drought, continual drought, um, it, it, it doesn't allow the, the system that works well to create healthy soil conditions to function. The actual hot, dry conditions doesn't impact things terribly, you probably get more of an impact on those soils, like I see the older soils that don't shrink and swell. Uh, they don't stick together quite as well as these soils that we have in the uh, Midwest and the upper Midwest that are, that are younger. So there is, a, there is a soil effect that um, is damaging, but probably the greater damage comes from the heavy rainfalls that beats the bejeeber side of the soil uh, when, those, when those rains come. So uh, do you encourage things like no-till farming and, uh, you know, retention of water through, you know, swales or rainwater collection or berms around a planting area? Uh, Another good question. Uh, We encourage any practice that does basically one or two, maybe three things. The first thing, as I mentioned, is that it intercepts the rainfall that's falling from the sky. There's a tremendous amount of energy in rainfall that impacts the soil surface. Uh, so how do we do that? You can do that. You mentioned no-till. If you don't till, the residues from the previous crop remain on the soil surface, and those residues in, uh, intercept those rainfall, uh, the raindrops, and uh, then that water you know, trickles down the residue on the soil surface, and those larger holes that we've been talking about, larger pores, remain available for rapid infiltration. The, the other, another management practice that will, uh, will, will help immensely is, is our perennials, close growing crops that do two things. Number one, they also intercept this rainfall, but they also have many roots near the soil surface. Uh, crop roots are the smorgasbord, so to speak, for all the bugs, microbes, the biology that we need for having a healthy soil. So to retain water, if you maintain a healthy soil, larger pores, which you get by intercepting that rainfall energy and by giving the microbes what they need to develop these soil structural units, uh, you're, in, uh, you're, you're a long way towards absorbing and retaining that water. Anything you can do to intercept water Anything you can do to slow the flow of water as it moves across the surface will help infiltration and infiltration rates and water storage. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers, because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button, and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running, 
and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going. And I love coffee. Thank you. I don't know if there's a term for this, but let's say I have a field of crops and the average depth of the roots is like three inches and it rains, but for some reason the soil characteristics only allow infiltration maybe to the top inch versus something that would infiltrate to the bottom of the root level and maybe a little bit lower. What would you expect to happen? And is there a term for this phenomenon? Well, if if you put a dry washcloth and, and let it touch a, a free water, Water moves up into that washcloth. Water moves from wet to dry. So when you ask what happens if rainfall is only sufficient to penetrate the top inch of a soil that has crop roots at three inches, you know, that water is eventually going to migrate slowly to that, to that lower depth. Um, what you're talking about, Okay, so the implication of that, and I'm dodging your question just a little bit in terms of a name for it, and I don't know of a name for that, but uh, what what happens, crop roots, plant roots have a tremendous capacity for something called root growth compensation. They grow their roots in the root zone, the portion of it that is most favorable for them. So if a condition that you've identified exists, where will we have root growth occurring? it's going to be in that moist area. So it does create more shallow root growth, at least temporarily. Shallow root growth is also more vulnerable to drought. So uh, we really want to have soil conditions and sufficient rainfall that allows water to penetrate to the base of that root zone. Uh, that is, is, is ideally the best. And we all know that doesn't always happen. But uh, if uh, if you continually get just shortage of small rain amounts, it's it's not good for the long-term survival of that crop. Have you seen any system, systems where they have, let's say, um, a drip line that's way below where the crops are? You know, like a series of drip lines running, let's say, I don't know, six inches down um, to, a, a, to entice the roots to grow further downward than they normally would? A- absolutely. Yeah. Drip irrigation, subsurface irrigation are approaches that uh, you will it does two things. It, it encourages deeper root growth, which is a good thing. But the other thing, the water use efficiency is much greater when you apply it that way as opposed to spraying it. You know, we see sprinkler irrigation systems. We see, you know, these rotational pivots. Um, and, you know, much of that water evaporates before it ever gets to the soil. And, and therefore, you need to apply much more than you do through like you mentioned, drip irrigation or subsurface lines that will irrigate. Uh, absolutely, that that approach to irrigation is much, much better. You know, with one caveat, if you apply water constantly to a zone, to a subsurface zone, with and, and you, evaporation will eventually cause salts to accumulate on the soil surface. You know, I mentioned that wash rag example, redip it in water. If you have a subsurface line of water, let's say six inches deep, 
and uh, you supply water through that line, you may get water moving to the cell surface and the evaporation, you get salt accumulation. So uh, you need to have some rainfall, some surface applications to uh, to move those salts to deeper deeper depths. So it, uh, it's a great idea, great for efficiency, but we still need some surface uh, waters to, uh, to to create a soil condition that's favorable for, for crop growth, soil conditions. So if you're growing a crop, should there be um, additional forced watering, you know, in excess in the beginning? And then later on, let's say when you want to go from the vegetative state to the, you know, to the, um, the flowering state, uh, there are certain times where you could punctuate water usage more heavily to make sure that everything's working better? Yes. Uh, two things. We can, we can talk about the soil condition itself, which we did a little bit about salt accumulation. But the other is about the crop use and when the crop is most sensitive to uh, water deficiencies. You know, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about corn. I'm more corn-centric than I am most other things. Corn yields are incredibly sensitive to stress during the pollination period. So if, if we can control water, control water application, you know, we would have a, a stress period early in the year. I mean, stress enough to cause the plant to die, but plant we want the plant roots to extend deeper in the soil so that if we're talking about rain-fed conditions, non-irrigation conditions, deeper roots have a greater volume of soil from which they can extract water later in the year. So if we get that deep root growth and then during the pollination time, you do get heat or, or uh, water stress, less rainfall, a well-developed root system gives you a much better opportunity to weather or make it through that, that drought stress period during that crop-sensitive time. Pollination for corn is an example. The converse of that, uh, Richard, is if, if we get heavy rains during the spring, and in the upper Midwest, we increasingly are seeing that. If we have flooded soil or soils that are basically saturated, the plant roots cannot grow in saturated soils. So if we end up with a shallow root system, let's say eight, 10 inches, because there's water logging below that depth, then it gets dry. You can say, well, the roots will then grow down. But with, with, with grasses and corn as a grass during the reproductive stage. And after that, crop root growth basically stops. So that um, if we have that shallow root growth that occurred due to water saturated conditions of the soils, in the early phase of crop growth, starts to dry out, and pollination comes along, your roots have not reached depth, you are set for crop failure. So if farmers always say, uh, you know, drought in the spring and rain in the fall is much, much better than rain in the spring and drought in the fall. So I guess if, if, if you develop shallow root systems, you know, wind would be more likely to knock stuff over. The plants probably wouldn't grow as high because, again, they're the shear of the, you know, the, the less deep roots wouldn't be able to withstand the shear and they might topple over more easily. Again, if it rains, the roots are more likely to get flooded or a higher percentage of them and not be able to maybe breathe. I guess it creates a whole host of problems. Uh, you're, you're exactly right. Yeah, the, uh, what you're talking about wind blowing over is a term root lodging, uh, which, which can occur if the uh, if shallow root growth and then you get heavy rains and heavy winds. Absolutely, you're right. Um, the, the capacity of, a, of the plant to withstand environmental stress of multiple types are, is, is reduced. 
So and, and I'll go back to the back to the soils now. Healthy soils that infiltrate water and allow water to penetrate to deeper layers has a, a, a much greater advantage than do soils that have a lower capacity to do that. Uh, what about the application of uh, fertilizer and um, you know herbicides? Are there better times to do it versus not, and how much? And what are the nuances there for soil health? The application timing relative to soil health is probably relatively minor. Um, the the timing of application relative to water health or water quality it is major. We ideally want for nutrient for fertilizer applications to be applying. Uh, at the time that the crop really needs it. You know, a young plant isn't taking up much uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. But when that plant has the, the seed is set and the, the crop, or when the crop is growing rapidly, that's when it needs those nutrients. So application timing is important. Subsurface application is a good thing uh, relative to water quality issues and relative to water availability. Uh, herbicide applications are, are, really anything that we've seen haven't had a, a major impact on soil health. Uh, so timing of that is 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 less critical. You really want to control your weeds. So dominantly, uh, the timing of weed growth is is the dictating factor relative to herbicide timing. Yeah, I've heard uh, the formation of mycorrhizae is very important um, for, for a field of crops. How, how is that encouraged? Or is that really overlooked in commercial grows? Well, I I don't know that it's it's overlooked. It's an area of science that hasn't received near the attention as as uh, fertilizers. Uh, mycorrhizae are absolutely critical. I mean, people tend to think when a root touches the soil and the nutrients move in, that's really really oversimplified. So uh, we'll go back to the healthy soil concept. If you have a healthy soil, you have greater microbiology. Greater microbiology gives you a greater source of inoculum for the root surface to develop this, uh, this mycorrhizal relationship that we're talking about. So uh, the, the mycorrhiza and, uh, and, and soil health are two, uh, two very important and very related. They're related uh, items. So uh, again, you can't, you're not going to typically have one healthy root mycorrhiza with an unhealthy soil. If I pulled two corn plants out of the ground and one had you know, great conditions all year, the right rainfall, the right times, et cetera, and one, you know, it wasn't doing too well. It had terrible conditions. What would I see differently about the root bundle if I pulled them out of the ground? You would uh, probably see, okay, I'm back up just a bit. Typically, we will have a ratio of grain weight to total plant weight that is pretty consistent whether the plant is stressed or not stressed. And part of that total plant rate weight is the root system itself. So if you have a stressed plant, you will probably have a smaller root system, a lower yield than you would have with that healthy plant that's got adequate uh, adequate resources to uh, to grow and produce. Uh, beyond that, you probably won't see a whole lot. The, the configuration will be about the same. The orientation of the roots will be about the same. But uh, it depends upon what caused that stress that that may impact uh, that crop root growth. But if we're talking primarily water, you, you're going to see similar shapes, but just less of a root system in that uh, drought-stricken, in that, that stressed plant. And and the other the important part about that is that, number one, why well, you need water to absorb nutrients, but uh, 
the smaller the root system, the less the soil can explore, explore for both water and nutrients. So uh, keeping that healthy soil environment is 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 really critical. You know, I, I teach a class in advanced soil management, and uh, you know, I, I I tell students to remember the word once when it comes to to managing soils. Uh, that's an acronym for W is for water, A is for air, N is for nutrients, T is for temperature, and S is for space or strength. That's strength of the soil itself. So, you know, when you see a farmer out there driving a big green tractor, big red tractor, the plant doesn't make, doesn't care. But it does care about wants. When that farmer is done, what kind of condition has that farmer created in the soil that's going to affect the water, it's going to affect the air. Plant roots cannot grow without air. So if you've got a flooded soil condition or one that's incredibly compacted, they're not going to grow. You have to have the nutrition. Uh, in northern parts, even farther south, extreme temperatures are negative to crop growth and root growth. And uh, if you've got compacted soils, it increases the strength. That's the S part. Uh, you also restrict growth, re- restrict root growth and the capacity of that plant to absorb water nutrients. So what are some, uh, I don't know, what are some practical tips or processes that you've, you've helped develop for, uh, you know, for people growing out in the field that have acres and acres of, of various crops? What are some things that they can do to help themselves? Well, we've, we've gone a lot, come a long way, I think, relative to no-till. Uh, no-till in terms of a broad application is probably the best thing we can do for both soil health and for conserving soil and water resources. We've, we've also developed, and this is more educational than it is changing directly what's happening in the fields. You know, we've developed a system where we're estimating soil erosion every day across uh, much of the Midwest. Uh, during these heavy rainstorms, uh, we're actually quantifying. You can go to, the, to a website and you can see how much soil has eroded in your area from a given rainstorm. So there's an educational component. If people understand how serious some of these things are, some of the erosion and water runoff occurring is, you know, there may be maybe some incentive. You know, people do things because of incentives. And if I'm a farmer and I see, you know, wow, you know, this this is not looking good, there may be some incentive to change. Uh, the no-till thing, the research that we've done with no-till, uh, I think had a reasonably positive impact in getting farmers to switch from their old moldboard plow or from form of plowing system to, to no-till operation. I think uh, those have, have been the, the dominant things that, uh, potentially dominant things for me personally, in terms of impact. At least I like to think they have. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of uh, regenerative agriculture, and I'm sure it incorporates no-till, but uh, are there any other principles that uh, that you found that, you know, whether they're in use or not, whether people are gun-shy about them or not, what other things do you think would be very beneficial for farmers? Regenerative agriculture, uh, the, the basic premise is, you, is that you have the capacity to improve the soil and the soil condition, the soil health. You do that by feeding the biology of the soil. How do you feed the biology of the soil? You grow crops that have root systems that favor microbiology. Most root systems that favor microbiology are fibrous, like grass roots. Now, if you have a single large tap root, it doesn't do a whole lot for, for soil microbiology and for regenerating 
the favorable soil condition that existed once upon a time, you know, when we broke those those native soils, when farmers broke the native prairie. So uh, if you can use a cropping system, and I'm not talking about, you know, if you're going to grow, if you're going to farm, you have to make money. If you don't make money, you don't farm. But there are practices that you can use, cover crops, crop rotations that are more diverse than just corn and soybeans, no-till that limits the disturbance of the soil, uh, integrated crop livestock systems so that the livestock manure is actually recycled back onto the land so the nutrients that uh, came from the soil you're putting back on. There are a lot of things that are biologically favorable in a regenerative, I use that term very loosely, in a regenerative agricultural system that, uh, that that works well with biology. If you work well with the biology, biology will work well with you. You know, my dad always told me, he says, you take, you take good care of soils, soils will take good care of you. That's kind of the, the, the principle behind regenerative ag. So the farms you've seen that are using everything, cover crops, you know, punctuated grazing, no-till, I mean, just they're doing everything that they're supposed to do. What kind of results are they getting versus that traditional like you know, spray and pray monoculture type places? When when we do the uh, economic analysis, uh, they are making as much per acre per unit area as the uh, yeah, you use the term spray and pray as as the big monocrop um, simple system agricultural systems. Now, in a given year those that are using the really diverse systems may have a lower income if you have a, say, a small grain rather than a row crop, then someone who has row crop, all corn, and your corn prices are uh, six, seven dollars an acre or a, a bushel. So marketing comes in also. In the long term, the income per unit area we see is as favorable in the regenerative form as is the more simplified form. Now, we have to also understand, uh, Richard, that as you add more biology to a system, you're adding complexity. And many farmers do not want to deal with complexity. You're also adding a greater labor component. So when I mentioned that you make as much per unit area in the more complex farming forms, and I favor those, an individual that isn't using the more complex agricultural systems approach. They say, well, shoot, I can farm 10,000 acres. Well, you can only farm 1,000 acres. So my, my total return may be greater, at least on the short term. Long-term return is more stable, tends to be more stable in the systems approach. Now we have to move into government programs. If you have a government program that guarantees you will have an income whether you fail or succeed, weather conditions be the, the primary driver, then you know I, I can I can argue that there is no incentive for someone that is using the spray and pray approach to move into a system that's we're uh, using the term regenerative that is more systems oriented. I don't know how many farmers we have percentage wise that have the skill set to go from a simple system where all the directions are basically written on a postage stamp to a system where you integrate crop, livestock, and other forms of biology. I don't, I don't think we have the skill set in the, in the farmer world right now that would allow us to do that on a mass basis. And, and we have government programs that are not incentivizing that type of move to occur. 
So I'm, I'm wandering around a little bit answering your question, but there's a lot of factors that come into play. You know, another thing, Richard, we have the majority of our agricultural land in the U.S. is rented. It's not owned by the person that operates it that does the farming. So I am a renter and I don't know how many years I'm going to have to farm this area. What is my incentive to try to do something that's systems oriented, that's going to build the soil and make the next producer five years from now a better crop? Mm. Why would I do that? When I can use a simple system, I have government support and insurance program that's going to ensure I have an income of some kind. Um, now, there, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of arguments why why simple systems are the king of mm. farming. So why do uh, some people engage in uh, regenerative agriculture versus not? What's the differentiator then? Everybody is different. Uh, you know what a bell-shaped curve is. You know, it, it identifies the frequencies of different populations. Mm-hmm. If we look at a farmer's commitment to conservation, it will also take a bell-shaped curve. You've got some on the one end of that curve way out there that I'll be, I don't care what you do. They're not going to change. They're going to use their simplified, their balls to the wall approach to farming. Mm-hmm. You have some on the other end, and I've got a lot of colleagues, farmer friends. I've got farmer friends on the other side too, that I don't care whether they rent. I don't care whether they own. They are going to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody is different. You know, when you hear farmers or people that, uh, you know, we don't want regulation say, well, every farmer is different. That's true. They are. But you have some that, that thrive on doing the right thing. It's an internal incentive mechanism. Generally, when we talk about incentive mechanisms, what do we talk about? We talk about money. Mm-hmm. We want farmers to try cover crops. What are we going to do? We're going to pay them to do it. Well, not all farmers need to be paid to do it. There's some that don't. And they just they have an internal mechanism that just drives them to do the right thing. On the other end, you have those that don't. Now our our challenge, your challenge, my challenge, and those that are interested in 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 soils and the soil resources is to move that big hump in the middle of this bell-shaped curve that they're interested in in saving soil. They're interested in doing the right thing, but you know maybe they're dominantly renting. Maybe for whatever reason, they my dad succeeded doing this, so I'm going to do it that way. How do we, how do we incentivize them? And I don't mean just money. It could be just a story. It could be something that trips the trigger in their mind. Says I'm going to do it that way. How do we move them to the right side? If if you if you can answer that, uh, please tell me. I've been working well, what for years. Yeah, what percentage of um, you know of farms, let's say corn, is is done the regenerative way just versus the traditional way? Uh, we're probably talking about uh, three or four percent. Not, oh, wow. not very much. And and you understand in in those farms, typically that corn that's produced is fed as grain to livestock. Mm-hmm. And the the biggest income stream for many of those is the livestock products more so than the grain products. Now, there are some grain products that are sold off of there. You know, when, when uh, w- without the government trying to stabilize, and I understand, I'm not knocking that. I know that farming is incredibly expensive, and if you don't have some backup, uh, you're, you're destined to fail, especially considering the climate that's coming at us. The, the method for income stability was diversification. You know, in a given year, you might have one 
one uh, commodity price that was low, but you make it up on the other one, which was high. You have a drought, something that failed part of your crop system, another other crops fared well. The diversity, you diversify a portfolio to give yourself income stability. What have we done in, in ag? We've taken an industrialized approach and what does what does industry do? They, uh, they simplify, they focus on one product, maybe two, and then capitalize on economies of scale. And this worked really well for them. So we've tried to do that in farming. We, we either put all of our livestock under one roof and we're focused on livestock production, confinement operations, or we grow only corn and beans or only wheat. You know, there's a big difference. Industry makes things like computers, tables, chairs, things that don't live. Farmers are working, are managing biology, and biology has never performed well in simplified systems. We're trying to force that to happen. Have you been able to characterize the personality of a farmer that uses these regenerative practices and is willing to listen? They, you know, is it random to you? Is it just a, you know, again, it's just a small percentage of the population that'll do it and most won't, or is there more nuance to it than you've seen? Yeah, you know, I wish I wish there was a nuance that I could understand and uh, figure out. I don't know what creates that incentive in a person. People do things because of incentives. Now, why two two kids can come out of a farm family and one is highly uh, invested in the regenerative or let's say systems approach. Regenerative kind of turns too many people off, but a systems approach to farming versus one that wants to have, I'll say, a very linear approach to farming. Same family, same parents, but one has that internal mechanism says, this is more important to me than driving a new pickup truck every year. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what causes that or creates that. You know, some, some people thrive on being creative. And I, I would say that most of the systems-oriented farmers are more creative. And I think those people have a lot more fun farming. You know, we have a lot okay. of ag- agribusiness people now driving tractors. Mm. Businessmen driving tractors versus farmers who are really trying to put the puzzle pieces together in a farming system and make it work. Okay, I see. Yeah, it seems to be uh, in the news and and all around that there's a possibility or high likelihood of uh, major famine worldwide, you know, with this year's harvest and going forward. Um, Any insights or thoughts into what's happening with, uh, with farming this year and with soil and everything? Well, yeah, I do. Uh, we've written some papers on it. And, uh, you know, if you go back to uh, the year 2012, uh, 2012 was a, uh, I don't want to say a global drought, but pretty close to it. There were a variety of countries that shut their their uh, exports down, trying to protect their own food sources. Could it happen again? Absolutely, it can happen again. We have a growing population, growing demand. We have increased economic conditions People are better off financially than they have been in the past. And what do people want more of food-wise when they have more money? It's meat. Uh, we have degraded soils. Uh, in, in the U.S. from the year, I got to see if I remember these numbers right, from about 1980 to 2005, and I may be off a little bit on these years, we lost almost 40 million acres, 40 million agricultural acres in the U.S., 
40 at that's uh, don't don't quote me on these numbers they're, they're reasonably close to uh to urban development the highways <laughs> the golf courses so when you ask that question you know we have a rising demand we have soils that are being degraded we have soils that are being covered we have climate that's less friendly than it has been in the past and it's going to get more unfriendly <laughs> uh and yes the potential for major famine, I, you know, that's kind of melodramatic, but uh, the potential for people going hungry, either because they can't afford food, or because food isn't there, it's much closer to being a reality than it was in my mind 20 years ago. Sheesh. Yeah, that's crazy. You would think we would have advanced and things would have improved, but uh, well, you said have... only three, a small percentage of farmers are even willing to entertain this stuff, so it's not good. It's, uh, no, I, I, <laughs> I lay awake some nights thinking about it. What what can be done differently to change this? You know, technology has helped us. I mean, there's no question about it. Our genetics are much better than they have been in the past in terms of handling stress. You you, you can only get so much out of that, though. You know, we've we have produced more. I'll, I'll use again. I use corn, and I apologize for being corn centric, but uh, you know, we're producing much more per unit area than we have in the past. And even under stress conditions, the challenge is the quality of that, the nutritional value has gone down. Hmm. You know, I've talked to breeders and and everyone has told me it's really easy, relatively easy to increase the photosynthesis rate, the photosynthetic capacity of of a plant. But it's really, really difficult to increase its capacity to take nutrients from a soil. Now, let's go back to the healthy soil issue. You can put a lot of, you know, photosynthesis simply is connecting carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. You know, see, all those come from water and the air. But somehow when that photosynthesis is occurring, if you're going to produce building blocks for life, you have to have nitrogen for proteins, phosphorus, potassium, other nutrients that we as humans and livestock that are going to eat those crops need to have. If your soil isn't, isn't, I use the term healthy. If if you don't have good fertility, if you don't have a good soil so that root systems can proliferate and extract those nutrients over there, um, you know that the system kind of falls apart. Hmm. We've been propping it up with technology, but uh, in reality, a uh, favoring biology would would be a good thing. You know, we had uh, we use when we're trying to evaluate uh, soil health. We often use the, uh, you know, some type of a carbon dioxide release from soils as a means of identifying health. If, if CO2 is being released, CO2 is released because of microbial activity. Mm. You know, decades, centuries ago, we'd talk about uh, the, the canary in the coal mine. You know, you put a canary in the coal mine, if the canary was happy and singing, the miners were happy and singing. Right. If that canary died, you better get out of Dodge quick. Well, mm-hmm. if you have a soil that's not releasing carbon dioxide, you have a soil in which you're not having microbes active. And if the microbes are not active, if it's not healthy for them, is it going to be healthy for a crop root? Probably not. Right. Yeah. So the uh, some of these things we try to measure to to guesstimate whether or not uh, we are having healthy soil environmental conditions. You know, we've we've lived ourselves. The canary in the coal mine is an example. It's a bioassay. Yeah. So I know you deal um, with, you know, what sounds like larger farms, but um, any advice for the individual person, you know, if you don't have, it's okay. But 
Um, any advice for an individual person that hasn't farmed at all, but maybe wants to dip their toe in and just get a feel for growing things? Uh, any tips for them on how to get started? Sure, sure. Uh, there are groups that self-help. Uh, in Iowa, we have a group called, and I can apologize for being Iowa-centric, uh, Practical Farmers of Iowa. Uh, they're grassroots. They're, they're, they're using practices, processes that, um, that favor soil health, that favor diversity on their farms, that uh, they're farmers. You know, they're, I would classify them more farmers than businessmen. If you can get engaged with those groups, and they exist in, in multiple locations of the, of the, of the, of the states. So uh, seek out those groups, seek out farmers that are successful and uh, try to mimic or learn from them. And, you know, that's, a, that's an, another point I wanted to mention before. You know, we have farmers that are using intensive systems approach to farming and they're surviving. They're financially well, they're financially healthy, which tells me and would tell this young person you're talking about that wants to start, it can be done. Mm. It can be done and can be done in a way that you are going to be financially fine. So uh, it, it just takes more skill, more dedication, and more determination uh, to make that work. Sure. It absolutely can be done. Well, very good. Uh, Rick, where can people find out more about your work? Where can they go? You can visit uh, visit webpage at Iowa State University or Google. You, you just Google Richard Cruz, C-R-U-S-E, and uh, you'll see uh, more stuff than you ever want to see, most likely. Yeah. Uh, or uh, give me a give me a call. Give me a send me an email. Email at rmc at iastate.edu. Happy to share. Okay. And if if you want to see what's happening in the soil erosion world, go to uh, yeah, it's dataerosion.org, all small letters, no space. And you can see a map of the soil erosion that's occurring today, yesterday, precipitation. You can look at it through various time periods. So uh, happy to share anything, anytime. Well, very good, Rick. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Richard. Enjoy. Remember, before you go, X3 is the device that will give you the body you want, one that your partner and your kids will admire you like you're a superhero. Go to x3bar.com and learn more about the professional athletes that use X3 exclusively, as well as many before and after transformations this discovery has caused. Enter the code LIFTSMARTER for $50 off at checkout. That's LIFTSMARTER without a space between the two words for $50 off at checkout. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.